With so many different ideas about how to make relationships work, how do you bring it all together in a way that makes sense? We'll be covering that question from an integral and integrated perspective on this week's episode. I also wanted to announce that Relationship Alive is officially on Instagram. So make sure you follow the official Relationship Alive account, not the joker who's pretending to be me, which of course is flattering, but still totally not me. So look for the Relationship Alive official account on Instagram. Relationship Alive is a personal journey for me and an offering for you so that you can have the best relationship possible. If you're finding the show to be helpful, please consider a donation to ensure that we can continue. We've been going now for more than three years as of last week. And while for me it is definitely a labor of love, your donations help keep the lights on here at Relationship Alive headquarters. So to choose something that feels right for you, just visit neilsatin.com slash support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, I would like to thank Amber, Michaela, Sarah, and Ruthanna. Thank you all so much for your generous support of Relationship Alive. Before we head into this week's episode, I just want to remind you of two more free resources that are available to help you in your relationship. The first is my top three relationship communication secrets guide. These are things that that can help you stay connected no matter how challenging the thing is that you're communicating about. To get the free guide, just visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And last but not least, if you're on Facebook, come join the Relationship Alive community where we've created a safe space for you to get support in your relationship. I hope to see you there with more than 2,000 other supportive people. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. We're trying to change culture with this show, and I'm so appreciative, as always, of your being here with me to evolve what is actually possible for us in terms of our relationships. And we know more about how to relate with other people than we've ever known before. We know more about the science. We know more about our spirit and how that factors in. We know more about the power of mindfulness. We know more about how our hearts interact with other hearts. It's all taking shape in a way that's very unique. And what we're trying to do here is to not only talk about it, but make it so practical for you so that you can put this stuff into use in your relationship. And so you can talk to other people and say, Hey, like you're having a hard time, you know, check out this episode with on relationship alive where you will get your problems solved or, or see a light at the end of this dark tunnel that 
let's face it, sometimes we're in a dark tunnel in our relationship. It's it's part of what happens. So I'm overjoyed today to have a returning guest, someone who has been on the show twice, and he's here today to talk about and celebrate, really, the release of his latest book called Loving Completely. I'm talking about Dr. Keith Witt, who you may know through uh, his appearances on The Daily Evolver, or you may have heard him here on Relationship Alive. He was here in episode 80, where we were talking about shadow, and he was also here way back in episode 13, talking about attunement and how important that is. So he is back on the show, and we will have a detailed transcript of this episode. If you want to get that, just visit neilsatin.com slash completely, as in loving completely. Or you can, as always, text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And we'll send you a link where you can download this transcript and all our other transcripts and show guides. So today we're going to talk about what it means to love completely and how that's maybe different than your standard kind of relationship and why it actually helps you deepen and deepen what's possible for you in partnership. Um, I think that's all I have to say for the moment. Keith Witt, it is such a treat as always to have you back here on Relationship Alive. Great to be with you, Neil. So let's just start there. Loving completely. Now, I know that some of the the book is based on a course that you did in the integral world called Loving Completely. What? Why Loving Completely? Where? What was the inspiration for you for that title versus just like how to have a kick-ass relationship? <laughs> That's not a bad title. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I've been doing therapy and writing and teaching for forty-four years. And and have studied dozens of brilliant people. Um, and most people, most researchers, their understanding comes from how they came to establish mastery in their areas of psychotherapy or of understanding. Um, uh, Esther Perel, for instance, worked a lot with pa- couples where, where people were unfaithful. And so she is oriented according to how sexuality ebbs and flows and manifests and affects relationships in her work. Stan Tatkin came from uh, attachment theory and interpersonal neurobiology, and his system um, is heavily oriented in that direction. John Gottman is, is a pure social scientist. I mean, the way that he found his wife was he went on 50 dates in 60 days, and she was the outlier who he married. He did it. He did it like a science experiment, and so his approach is social science. He finds social uses social science to find what works and doesn't work, and so on. So everybody comes from their orientation, and they're all right. But in integral psychology, we say that everybody gets to be right, but nobody gets to be right all the time. And so most of us who who work with couples and individuals have found that people are wildly unique, and people have different languages and understandings that help them love better. And so I was interested in an orienting system where you could start with basic principles and practices, and they could lead you in the direction that you were most open 
open to in terms of helping you grow and transform in your ability to um, be intimate with the different parts of yourself and be effectively intimate with other people and, and especially with your chosen partner um, in a, a long-term lover relationship. And so that motivated me. That was a challenge. How, how do you get oriented in that fashion? And so out of that came the Loving Completely course. And then out of that course came, I wanted to expand the ideas um, and present a deeper dive into a lot of the constructs. And so I wrote the Loving Completely book, which is going to come out soon. And that's what oriented me in terms of and inspired me in terms of writing this book. Yeah, I like that picture of completeness not only in terms of what it inspires me to think about like and how I conduct my relationship, the process of my relationship, but also the willingness to look across the spectrum of what's available to help you, that you don't have to be confined um, just because so-and-so says that their thing works, you know, 85% of the time. You know, if it doesn't work for you, you're not screwed. Like there's there's other there are other options for you that might be effective for you. Um, and so there's that completeness of like, oh, the whole world is available for me to actually help me get this get this right. Yes. And we live in an age where there's a cornucopia of great knowledge available to us and especially um around intimacy and around relationships. Um, and so let me explain. Uh, an intimate, I'm, and I'm going to talk mostly about a committed uh, intimate relationship like a marriage, uh, a long-term love affair, and so on. Though these principles apply to lots of uh, relationships, uh, parental relationships, um, uh, sibling relationships, friend relationships, and so on. But a relationship, a marriage, is basically a friendship a love affair, a capacity to notice and repair injuries and ruptures, and a mutual commitment to each other's evolution. If those four components are attended to on a daily basis, couples tend to do well. If one of those lapses in some fashion, um, uh, suffering occurs and suffering in a relationship um, tends to spiral into separation and this is one of the reasons why half the marriages end in divorce um, and so how, how do we so that's that's a great picture of a good relationship but how do we do that how do we how do we uh, establish that and just like any area of mastery what you do is you pick a goal you get ignited i want to have great relationships you find data and information and master coaching in the world and then you break it up into chunks and you you do focus practice on those chunks and with a growth mindset of effort and progress is what matters we're not we're not trying to get anywhere we're just trying to have effort and progress you gradually can establish mastery in this area of loving loving another person helping another person love you. Um, so a couple things are coming up for me right now. One is, we're, you know, we're talking here, we're on a show where we are focused about, we're coming from a growth mindset. And, yes. and I can't tell you how many times I read something or I have this a conversation with you or someone like you and, and I have that light bulb moment of like, oh, Right. I like I've this is how I've been seeing it. And 
I could be open to a different perspective here, and that actually might serve me a lot better. Um, so let's just start with maybe the the hardest question, um, which a lot of people who listen to the show are going to be asking, which is like, all right, you said growth mindset, and now I just know that this ain't happening because my partner, like, that's the problem. They don't have a growth mindset, and they're they're fixed, and they're shut down, and I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. I know you've, in the 65,000 or more sessions you've done with people, you've come up uh, against this with couples, and I'm curious to know how you help inspire both people in a moment like this? A human superpower is our ability to receive caring influence. That is a superpower. Um, and it's, it's, it's more difficult than it sounds. Receiving caring influence means that you allow yourself to change how you think and what you do um, in response to someone else trying to help. Okay. Now, when people get threatened, when people feel insecure, um, when they feel uh, unsafe, their nervous systems get more rigid. Uh, you're, you're, more, you're slower thinking of, of frontal cortex gets inhibited and your faster thinking brainstem takes charge. And one of the ways it takes charge is it resists receiving influence. And so if you have a partner that is resisting receiving influence, it probably means that on a particular level, they feel unsafe. And so when someone comes in or a couple comes in, part of my job is to help that first person feel safe. And generally the way that I help people feel safe is through compassionate understanding. I know that at the core of everyone, there's a little interface between them and spirit. Um, Patricia Albert in the Evolutionary Collective calls that the origin point, and the traditions have called it Atman, soul, that kind of thing. That's how I identify people. Um, and so my job is to connect with that spot in them and then help them feel understood by me. And as we go into that understanding, we find the place where they feel threatened, where they resist Influence, And the place where you resist influence and, and you feel threatened is also the place where you're yearning for something. You're yearning for love. You're learning, yearning for security. You're yearning for passion. You're, you're yearning to be known deeply. And as I help someone feel safe and as I help them uh, understand their yearning, we can begin to open up a little bit to how those yearnings can be met in their relationship. They can be met by their partner, and I can help their partner help this other person feel safe. By the very act of coming to a therapist, people have gone to an environment where they've acknowledged we can't help each other feel safe enough to change. We need somebody else to provide a little bit more safety. And so that's a, a central part of what therapists do. Now, does that work all the time? Nothing works all the time. Does it work a lot? Yeah, it does. And if your partner feels, seems impenetrable, then what you want to do is you want to say, well, look, let's get some help. Let's find somebody that you trust and let's get them to help us love each other better. Let's get them to help us be more connected. Um, and you take a stand for that. And if your partner can't do it, you go get help. And then that person helps you encourage your partner to get help. And so that's how it goes. Usually that ends up with both people getting into therapy, but not always. 
And, and, and frankly, it's just a bad sign if somebody has having problems and refuses therapy. Um, that predicts uh, marital dissolution pretty reliably in uh, a lot of cases. And that's just the way it works. If you take a rigid position, particularly in the 21st century with your partner, um, and refuse to work on things that are disturbing to them, that will separate you. And, and those separations get worse. They don't get better. Um, so th those are the ruptures and repairs that are so important. They need to be repaired. And they're repaired when we're making that condition better, when we're working at loving each other better. Yeah, and this, I think, is so important because it's tempting, especially as you read a lot of, uh, let's just say, self-help books about relationship, which you know you might be doing if there are some issues going on, or you might be doing even if you're like, I just want to know how to do this better, and kudos to you if that's what you're doing. Um, Keith's book is great for that. It can be tempting to think like, okay, well, I'm going to go into this with my partner like, you know, like a therapist would, like now I have, I'm armed with all this new knowledge and I'm going to bring it into my relationship. And to some level, I think that is helpful. But what I'm hearing from you that I think is so key for people to get is that the real gem that happens in good, good therapy in a good therapeutic setting is creating that safety and being seen without judgment being seen with compassion and that that from that everything else can grow it's i i would think that it's rare that someone comes in and you're just you're not just instructing them right i mean i sure don't in my coaching practice like we're not saying you're doing this wrong you're doing relationship wrong so let me just tell you how to do it right and then all you're all set you can free to go yeah well that would be great <laughs> if it worked <laughs> You know, uh, when I wrote a book on integral psychotherapy called Waking Up, and in that I said what an integral psychotherapist does is relate, teach, inspire, confront, interpret, and direct. And relating is first. If someone is open to learning a new perspective, they're open to receiving influence. In other words, they get influence to, to change what they think and do. Um, a lot of therapy is just getting 80% of therapy is getting to the point where someone is feel safe enough to be willing to do that. And yes, we don't do that with our partners. I have two kids, uh, they're grown 33 and 30 and a wife, and I don't give them any input unless they ask specifically for it. And the reason why I've done that is because I realized as, as our family was developing that um, I didn't have a contract with them like I did with my clients. Um, and that, that actually interfered with our relationship uh, if I offered input that wasn't requested or welcomed. Um, and so I've, I'm way more conservative when it comes to my opinions or my observations with my own family. Why? Because I'm, I'm not there primarily to enlighten them or to help them. I'm there to support the intersubjectivity of our relationships. I'm there to support our love for each other. And supporting our love for each other means having this relationship where on a psychological, spiritual level, we're experiencing ourselves as having equal power, equal credibility, you know, equal um, say in the important aspects of our life around money, sex, parenting, time, that kind of stuff. Keith, we need to take a quick break to talk about this week's amazing sponsors. 
We have one new sponsor and one returning sponsor, both with great offers for you for being a Relationship Alive listener. Our first sponsor this week offers products to help you and your partner do better with this one activity that you spend like one third of your life doing. Do you have any guesses about what that might be? If you guessed sleeping, you're right. This week's sponsor's name is Casper, and the experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep surface that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. With a breathable design that helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. Their mattresses are affordable, too, because they cut out the middleman and sell direct to you. So when I mentioned to a really good friend of mine that Casper was sponsoring the podcast, she said something like, wow, that's amazing. I love my Casper mattress and I've been telling friends that they should go and get one. Um, Now, I should mention that this is a friend of mine who has impeccable integrity and who doesn't recommend things lightly. And actually, Chloe and I spent the night in her bed once, I guess I should probably clarify that she wasn't there, Um, but we both remarked the next day about what a good night's sleep we had. So something else is really cool, which is that you can be sure of your purchase uh, because Casper has this 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. You get to actually try the mattress out, and if you're not satisfied after 100 nights, you can return it for a full free refund and Casper is offering something special for you. You can get $50 toward select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash alive and using the code alive at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's $50 off on select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash alive and using the coupon code ALIVE at checkout. You've heard me talk about our other sponsor before because Chloe and I absolutely love what they do. Their name is RX Bar, and they make a whole food protein bar that's super tasty and super healthy. They're gluten-free, soy-free, and dairy-free, and have no added sugar. They have no artificial flavors, no preservatives, no fillers, and are made with simple, real, whole food ingredients with egg whites at their base for protein that's easy to absorb and they're sweetened with dates so they're perfect for a snack on the go which is why chloe and i typically have one or two with us wherever we go yep usually more than one so that we can share them with others with each other with the kids overall there are 14 flavors to choose from with some additional seasonal flavors But my favorite is probably the good standard peanut butter chocolate chip, while Chloe really likes the sea salt chocolate, although I like that too. And I also really like the maple sea salt. And RX Bar also has a special offer for you. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash alive and use the coupon code alive at checkout. And that's for 25% off your first order. So thank you so much, RX Bar and Casper, for your support of the Relationship Alive podcast. 
And now let's get back to the conversation with Keith Witt, where we were talking about the difference between a therapeutic relationship and your relationship with your partner and family and how to bring what you learn into your relationship in a way that's healthy and that contributes to the dynamic with your partner and your family. And that all that stuff needs to be negotiated in a dialectic. And the dialectic is two people looking for deeper truths, um, respecting each other, open to each other's influence, and, and acknowledging their individual rights. And that's, that's, that's called a growth hierarchy. It's a power hierarchy, but it doesn't look like a power, power hierarchy because – you know, when people are going back and forth in a in that environment, it, you, you're not noticing how one person has a little more credibility, a little more power than the other person does because there's a flow back and forth. In the integral uh, cosmology, that's called the second tier. That's a particular kind of relating. Um, now, when people get threatened, they go into dominator hierarchies. So you stop receiving influence and you're trying to bully the other person or convince the other person or, or submit even to the other person. That dominator hierarchy can get something done, but it's, it contaminates a relationship. And an awful lot of work, um, whether therapists know it or not, when they're working with couples, is sh- noticing that shift into dominator hierarchies and then interrupting it and encouraging couples to go back into growth hierarchies where they're looking for deeper truth, more open to influence being respectful, allowing each other individual rights. And it, just that, just paying attention to that can transform your whole relational universe. Um, particularly, it can transform a universe relating to other people because once you start noticing those things, you see growth hierarchies and dominator hierarchies everywhere. And if you have a moral sense of standing for growth hierarchies, that means that whenever you're around, you want to generate them. And if there's a dominator hierarchy happening, you want to start working to shift that into a growth hierarchy. Mm-hmm. No, nowhere is that more important than in your intimate relationship. Yeah. And this is something that comes up a lot, actually, in our Facebook group. And I'm just because we're we're here, I'm curious for your perspective on this. A lot of uh, a lot of my listeners have actually been married and gotten divorced, and now they're working on their next big love, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, that introduces all kinds of other dynamics with former partners, their new partners, and that's a that's a situation that's like ripe for uh, power struggles and dominator hierarchies to, to emerge. So I'm curious, like how would, like if you're a growth oriented person and you're just getting hammered by a dominator, mm-hmm. what do you, what's a good pathway through to navigate through that, that you might offer someone? Well, first of all, that is the, the, Particularly for educated people in this country, generally um, uh, they go through at least two major intimate relationships, sometimes more. Um, you know, I was a hippie back back in the 60s and 70s, so I had a three-year relationship where we didn't get married, but essentially it was a first marriage. So that's very common. Um, and when there's children and in-laws, you are bringing other people in and other responsibilities. Um, Stan Tatkin says, calls it the rule of thirds. Um, you know, and, and he makes a point that I, I agree with. 
Yes, there's a lot of added complexity that comes when people um, have a second or third serious relationship. But that is simplified if you recognize the primacy of the intimate bond. The primacy, there's a reason that they call it a primary relationship. And that primary relationship is we want to maintain this container in integrity. We want to have this container be as clean and as pure and as beautiful as possible. And that means our friendship, our, our love affair, our capacity to heal injuries and our commitment to mutual evolution comes first. And then everything else gets organized around that. What that does is it, get, it gets you oriented in terms of other demands. Say there's an ex-spouse that is aggressive. This happens sometimes or punitive. Um, people get angry and after a separation, it's, and you're, often separations are expensive and they're difficult and people's um, more egocentric and distressed selves will come out. And then they don't have much contact with each other, which makes it easier to objectify each other and see each other in negative black and white terms. Well, that's not good for anybody. It's, it's, it's particularly not good for children. Um, ch children of a divorce who have parents who are acrimonious with each other do worse. They have more symptoms and they have more problems. And so you don't want to encourage that. You want to discourage that. How do you do that? Well, there's two general ways of dealing with other people. There's what you and I are doing now, which is relating. Relating is we're just telling our truth. We're respecting each other. We got individual rights. And we're both open to carrying influence. You tell me something that's a better idea than something I got, I'll change, change my idea and, and change how I think and what I do. That's relating. And relating is a superior way of being. But say somebody can't relate. Well, then you handle them. And how do you handle them? Well, you handle them so that they can't successfully dominate in a dominator hierarchy, um, and you get, make it easier for them to relate. For instance, you set boundaries. So if this happens all the time when one ex-spouse wants special privileges um, and, and comes to feel entitled to it because the other person just tries to say yes rather than thinks in a larger sense about what's going to make this a more coherent relationship. So then what you do is you start setting boundaries around whatever the dissolution agreement was. You don't say yes unnecessarily. And if someone is acting in a disrespectful fashion, you disengage. You set a boundary. Okay, so over time, this influences the other person to be more respectful. Um, it's very much like parenting a child. Uh, and it's similar because when people are in defensive states, basically they've regressed to child ego states. And so you, you don't have to be – you can be respectful, but you need to be firm. I'm respectful of my four-year-old who doesn't want to get in the car and go to the dentist, but I'm firm. You're going to have to get in the car and go to the dentist, and that's all there is to it. Um, so respectfully, get in the car or go to the dentist. <laughs> um, you spoke in Loving Completely, and I want to dive more into the meat of the matter here momentarily. You spoke about your commitment to more and more interacting with the world from a place of loving kindness and compassion. Yes. A and even then, you mentioned that there are some relationships and connections that you've had to let go of. Yes. And I'm curious for you, 
what is that barometer like in terms of you knowing like, okay, I guess I've done all I can do here versus like, you know what, I, I'm going to keep trying. There, I, I have faith in this particular container that, that there's, it will ultimately yield to the power of, of a growth, a growth mindset uh-huh. and relating. Well, first of all, it, it of course depends on the nature of the relationship. You know, loving kindness, loving kindness is a practice and we can all do it now because it's a wonderful practice to get yourself into a place where you are available to engage in mature and healthy activity. And here's how you do it. You imagine some other person, say I'm imagining you right now, and then I'm reaching out from my heart to your heart and in my mind I'm saying to myself, from my heart to your heart, may you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you have an easeful life. And as I do that, I'm changing my state. Now, if I do that, with, if you're my lover and, I, and we do, I do that when we're in conflict, my defensive state, because I'm in, if we're in conflict, our, our communication is complementary. Uh, we're probably both in defensive states that are self-amplifying, which is why defensive states are so dangerous with couples. What I'm doing is, is I, I am now shifting into another state of consciousness where instead of allowing my nervous system to relate to you as an unsafe person that I am objectifying to a certain extent, now I'm relating to you as someone I care about. And that shifts my state. Now, as I do that, if we're around each other and you can see into my eyes and hear my voice, your state begins to shift out of defensive state into a state of healthy response to the present moment. And so loving kindness meditation is a wonderful practice to learn how to do when you're stressed because it shifts your state into an area where you have access to your frontal lobes, you have access to your deep wisdom, and you're regulating your defensive states into your more mature and more powerful states of conscious awareness and compassionate understanding. And I encourage everybody who's listening to do it at this moment. Imagine somebody... You can imagine me if you want. I can take all the loving kindness that you, you know, <laughs> the people can give. Your heart to that person's heart and in your mind say, may you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you have an easeful life. And see how it feels. Interestingly, when people did this, medi- this uh, meditation, they had anti-inflammatory genes activated in their bodies and anti-viral uh, genes activated in their bodies. That this meditation made their immune systems more robust by shifting the myelinization patterns of their genetic expression. That's how powerful this is. Wow. Wow. And uh, yeah, I'm just struck by that, you know, like we talk about our anger being inflamed and how interesting that anti-inflammatory actions take place when we go into a place of loving kindness like that. It's amazing. Um, And I'm thinking too about, you know, my own experience with Chloe um, and, you know, we're doing really well together. Not that we haven't had our challenges and, you know, despite doing really, really well together when something happens and one of us goes to that, 
um, defensive state and we both end up there. Um, even, I guess what I'm saying is even in the best of relationships and you talk about this with Becky as well, it can be such a challenge, such an effort to even utter within, you know, much less saying it out loud to your partner if you happen to be in their presence, but within like, may you be safe, may you be loved. Um, it's in, I think if you are, if you're thinking back to a time when you had an argument with your partner, you'll get what I'm talking about that. It's like the last thing you want to do. And That's yet right. it has so much power if you can somehow do it. Yeah. The, the, what helps me with this is understanding that those defensive states that you enter when you're mad at each other, those were evolutionary milestones for the human species. Most of our brain is designed to relate with other people. And there's a lot of good evidence that one of the reasons that brain size expanded about um, 2 million, 3 million years ago is because the, the level of complexity in human groups went up and we needed to have more brain power to be able to relate with each other. And in those, in those uh, primitive tribes, there were social organizations just like there are in primate groups. And that meant when there was a problem that couldn't be resolved cooperatively, people went into dominance displays. You know, because the, the, the dominance hierarchies are what maintain the social fabric. And what they would do, would, would, they're, they're, they were programmed to do genetically, is to raise their emotional intensity to intimidate the other person into uh, taking a, an, a, an inferior place on the dominance hierarchy or to, indicate, to, to have you um, submit in a way that, that would happen before physical violence could take place, which would maintain the integrity of the social structure and protect people from hurting each other because evolutionarily speaking, the biggest threat to humans for the last couple million years have been other humans. Now, what modern consciousness has brought to bear is way more powerful ways of dealing with conflict, way more sophisticated ways. And so when those defensive states are, are activated, if I know that if I can engage in collaborative um, attunement and problem solving with this person, what that does is it opens up a possibility for this moment to enhance our personal evolution. This moment to make our love deeper, to, to support our friendship and our love affair. If I know that, if I can just have the faintest memory of that, then I can start working at soothing myself and soothing you and inviting you into that process to create that container of that dialectic, that container of mutual respect and individual rights and looking for a deeper truth and re receiving influence. And when we do that a hundred times or a thousand times and discover how well it works, how it creates these miracles of consciousness, then what we've done is we've taken those primitive impulses and we've included and transcended them into more sophisticated influences. And you know, in our last talk, I talked about how what we're actually doing is growing our shadow selves. We're growing our unconscious. Our unconscious becomes more complex and it regulates outside of our awareness so that it gets easier and easier to reach for these better states. Now, every once in a while, we get triggered, usually from a trauma memory, and bam, here comes the defensive state. Happens in 60 milliseconds. We have amplified or numbed emotions, distorted perspectives, destructive impulses, and diminished capacities for empathy and self-reflection, like that. But if you can learn to self-observe that, what you end up doing is instead of trusting 
all that stuff, trusting that distorted perspective, trusting those destructive impulses, going along with that lack of, ref- of self-reflection and empathy and say, no, no, I'm in, an, I'm in actually in a disadvantaged state now. I need to reach for something that is more powerful, like compassion and understanding. That provides the impetus interiorly to do that for yourself. And then when you, when you are doing that for yourself, you're non-verbally and verbally encouraging your partner to do the same. Yeah. And this may I um offer just like a quick example of this? Sure. So um just the other night, um I was with Chloe and and we were talking about something she was going to cover for me for something. And um and she made a comment like it's this is actually the last thing I want to do. This is it sounds horrible to me, but I'm going to do it. But it sounds horrible. And I immediately went into a like, you know, she's being negative about this thing. And like, I don't even want you to do it anyway, if it's going to be horrible for you. And like, so we, we started spiraling down this place and it was kind of late at night. So, you know, we weren't in our, you know, there, there's not a lot of willpower left at That's the, right. oh, at the no. end of the day to actually steer yourself back. But fortunately I had been um, reading your book. And um, so I, I turned to her and I said, um, help me, help me help you. Like what I'm, I'm hearing you say that this is horrible and it's like, sounds like hell. And, and, and I don't know what you need from me right now. I know what I can see is that I'm just going into this place where I'm polarizing or where I somehow want to change you or change your experience. But I clearly that's not working because you're just getting more and more angry at me and I'm getting more angry at you. Like, what do you need? And, you know, to prove your point, Keith, and this was just so hilarious to me in the moment, she looked at me and her eyes were big and wide and she just said, I need your compassion. I need you to understand that. uh, Yes. I'm of course I'm going to do this for you. I love you. And it's not, it wouldn't be my first choice to do this thing. And I just need you to hear me and to acknowledge me and to be compassionate. Um, so that was like the first thing that was like, oh, okay, right. And, and, and so of course I'm, I'm thinking like, I know this, you know, and of course <laughs> I know this, like I've, cause we've done this a million times, but here we were in this, in this space of, of conflict. And, um, and so then I started thinking like, well, I know that the key right now is to be compassionate and I've even done it before, but right now I, I can't for some reason, I really can't. And so I asked myself like, why, why can't I be compassionate right now? And, and I had this huge realization about my own earlier experiences with being confronted with, you know, I had an idea about something and you know, just to keep it somewhat vague, like let's say a family member would (laughs) shit on my idea or say like, no, like that, we're not going to do that. And so for me, I had to develop a pretty strong um, defense to that kind of what I perceived as negative energy or a negative attack. And so my my choice was never to meet that with compassion. I, I, I didn't, no one instructed me on how to do that as a kid. So I was just like kind of shoring myself up and figuring like, okay, how do I turn a negative into a positive? How do I, 
you know, it's like I had Martin Seligman in my back pocket, like, and which was good for me, you know, on some level. But in this situation with Chloe, there was no like saying, hey, like, you know, let's turn those lemons into lemonade. Like that wasn't what she needed in that moment. And as soon as I realized that and I shared that with her, oh, wow, I'm realizing that you need compassion and I can't do it. And it's because I just have this defense against being like, I've never learned how to be compassionate. What I've learned how to do is to try to look on the bright side or try to make things not as bad. And, and, um, for us, it was this huge moment of understanding that just softened everything. And, um, you know, next thing you knew, we were singing to each other and, (laughs) and making, making peace with each other instead of making war. Well, I just love that story. You know, when a couple comes in with a story like that, there's part of me that goes, hmm, my work here is done. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, you notice what you did. You went into vulnerability as power, which you can do with her because she's a sophisticated enough partner to, to see that and to be moved by it. And then you went into the real issue. The real issue is us, our container. And to go that, I have to go essentially into my trauma history to find out why I had this reaction that's more rigid than I'm used to, that's more amplified than I'm used to. And yes, that always comes from previous learning. Often it comes from family of origin. And when you understand that the problem right now was a solution, often a brilliant solution 40 years ago, but now it's not adequate because I'm in a relationship where I can actually go into deeper love from this place, which was not available then. I'd rather go into deeper love. And that's what you guys did. And you were focusing on the real issue, which is we need to, there's a rupture in our container, in our inner subjective container, and we need to heal that. And we know that we've healed it when we feel that sense of loving connection. You know, when you're repairing, yes, you want to validate the other person. And yes, the other person wants to feel understood. And you want to feel understood. And you want to take a little bit of action to solve the problem. Those are all important parts of repair. Yeah, you want to accept that that's not going to solve the whole problem, but it will solve a piece of it. But at the very end of it, there needs to be loving connection. If you haven't, don't have that loving connection, you haven't repaired yet. And you only know that when you both feel it at the same time. And everybody who's done that, which is almost all of us, knows what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And, that needs to, and that needs to be the standard. That is always the standard to get back to love. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, um, this little song. I, I don't know who the source of it is, but Chloe learned it recently and, and it's become our latest practice at the, you know, at the end of conflict, not that conflict's happening all the time, but, um, it just as a reminder and, and a recognition of, of, um, having gotten back to love and can I sing it? Can I share? Oh, please. I was going right. to ask you to sing it. Sing yeah. it. All right. So it goes like this. I behold you, beautiful one. I behold you, child of the earth and sun. Let my love wash over you. Let my love watch over you. That's it. That's that's beautiful. Yeah. So for us, that... and, And actually, I find myself like, you know, when I'm still stewing, I can sing that to her in my mind and that also helps like okay i i'm i'm coming back now i can remember that 
the, the whole reason we're here is because we love each other and because our love is ever deepening and we've had that experience. So that help that also helps me come back to the table and, and get back to love with her. When you sing that song inside you, when you're with her, you're doing loving kindness meditation. Yes. That, that's another form of loving kindness meditation. Yes, exactly. Ah, so Keith, let's, um, let's shift gears just a little bit because I want to give you a chance to paint the picture. You, um, created a beautiful scaffolding around which loving completely is built. And you call it the five star practice. And there, <sighs> there are these five questions that people can ask themselves about themselves and about their uh, partner um, to help direct their attention to the elements that create an amazing, thriving relationship. And you talk about how it came up um, in a conversation with your kids around like what to look for in a, in a good partner and, um, and how that has become this, this lens through which you can, these questions have become a lens through which you can look at any relationship and see what's going well, what's not, where you might need to adjust your, your habits. And um, so c- could we go through those, those five star questions um, sure. so people get a sense of what we're talking about? Yes. The, the genesis of this was in a conversation with my two teenage kids in the kitchen of them asking, how do I choose somebody? Um, and uh, anybody who's done therapy realizes that at some certain points in your life, you know, you kind of open up and something comes through, you become a channel. And so those five questions came out. And as a scientist, I'm always a little uncomfortable with stuff like that because, you know, <laughs> yes, we can see it as an unconscious download, but it always feels like you're connected to something larger. Mm. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that the, they really haven't changed that much over the years. It's been 15 years or so. And they've been cross-validated again and again and again and again with neuroscience and social science and so on. And, and so I'll tell you the five questions, but I'll tell you the reason for the questions, and I'll tell you the foundation of the questions. Great. The, the foundation is compassionate self and other observation. You know, loving kindness meditation does that. Attunement, you know, paying attention with acceptance and caring intent to what you're sensing, feeling, thinking, uh, judging and wanting. Paying attention with acceptance and caring intent, what your partner might be sensing, feeling, thinking, judging and wanting. That's the foundation, compassionate self and other observation. Now, if you can establish that in however way you do it, if you ask yourself these questions, you're basically, when you ask yourself a question, you're opening up to your unconscious. So the questions are, first, is there an erotic polar- polarity between me and this other person? Is there a spark between their feminine and my masculine? Because when we are looking for a partner or when we are maintaining a relationship, part of that is the love affair. And that love affair is a big deal. And that love affair is based on a spark between two poles, between the masculine in one person and the feminine in the other. Now, we have energetic polarities between ourselves and everything and everybody. Um, you have an energetic polarity when you look at um, a sunset or when you're, you're, you're telling your, your daughter, good night, I love you. Um, but you have a certain kind of erotic polarity. It has a sexual feel between you, you as a masculine or feminine person and another person as a masculine or feminine person. And we're adjusting those all the time. 
And so that's one question. Is there a spark of erotic polarity between me and this other person? The second question is, does this person maintain their physical and psychological health? Um, doesn't mean they have to be super healthy. It just means they're responsible for their physical and psychological health. And if there's a problem, they'll take care of it. Third question is, if I'm in relationship with this person or if I am and there's conflict, uh, would they be able and willing to do what it takes to get back to love? Uh, we've been talking about repair, you and I, and that's a central skill in intimate relationships. A fourth question is, would this person show up appropriately for a child or a family member? Um, appropriately is not codependently. Appropriately is there's a lot of things that are appropriate, but uh, will they show up in a healthy fashion for um, a child or a family member? And the fifth one is, does this person have something larger than themselves, something sacred that they're committed to? And did they feel a sense of respect, even admiration, or would they feel that for what's sacred to me? So those are a lot of questions, but you know, if you pay attention to those five dimensions about other people, after a while, they become like new sense organs. And you just notice these things. You pull up to somebody, uh, you're sitting down next to somebody in a restaurant, and you look over and you go, I bet that person would be a good parent. Or you see somebody, you go, hmm, I feel a spark of erotic polarity with this person. Or you look at that person, you go, I don't think that person maintains their physical health uh, very well. Um, or they do. Um, they become things that you notice, like people's clothes and eye color. And if you notice them in about other people, it makes it easier to notice them about yourself. And these are not absolute questions. In relationships, we go moment to moment to moment to moment. And so there are dimensions that keep shifting. I can be engaged in a healthy behavior in one moment, and then all of a sudden I'm reaching for the donut and I'm engaging in an unhealthy behavior. Okay. And now, what am I going to do with that, about that? Am I going to adjust towards health, or am I going to eat the donut, then eat another donut? If I do that as a habit, then I'm not maintaining my, my physical health, for instance. And in relationships, we're always kind of adjusting. When I was talking earlier about being in growth uh, uh, power hierarchies and then adjusting from dominator hierarchies to growth hierarchies, that's attending on a moment-to-moment. -moment. And these five dimensions are ways of adjusting. Am I showing up appropriately for my son? Am I expressing admiration um, and respect for what my wife finds deeply meaningful? Um, and, and if I'm evaluating a partner, does this person do these things? And if the answer to even one of these is no, then there's going to be problems. That doesn't mean you don't get in a relationship, but what it does mean is you have a conversation about it. And if you can ask yourself these questions about yourself and other people, what that does is it opens you up to have these be uh, continua that you can discuss. They make them talk aboutable in relationship. And one of the big problems that couples have is they have one set of agreements on top that they usually hear in their marriage vows and a whole different set of agreements below the surface that never get discussed until a problem comes up. You know, a great one is, you know, I promise to be faithful for you. That's a public agreement. And then the private one, unless I have an opportunity to have great sex with somebody else, then I have this conviction that you'll never find out about it. <laughs> right. <Okay>. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, that if that agreement, if that, that private agreement is examined by me and discussed with you, I'm less vulnerable to have that happen. 
number one predictor of affairs is opportunity. And people have an opportunity and they're not prepared because these things have not been talk aboutable with another person. Um, that's one of the reasons I have two or three chapters on uh, affairs and what to do about affairs and loving completely. You know, e- even if you've never had an affair or if your partner has never had an affair, um, it's useful to understand the dynamics of affairs because those dynamics affect everybody. And if we're aware of those dynamics, awareness regulates. Um, and so being more woken up and more aware um, helps prepare us. Now, this is my bias. My bias is I like to understand everything. That's why I like integral studies. Integral theory is a meta theory that has a lot of theories inside it. Um, And other people don't particularly like to grow in that fashion. Um, But if there's one approach that speaks to you around any of these, okay, you can just dive into that approach. But you don't dive into the approach unless you realize it's something that needs attention. And asking yourself these questions and ask about yourself and your partner and having them be modes of discourse between you and your partner, if some problem does happen in your inner subjectivity, if there is a problem in your friendship, your love affair, your ability to receive influence or support of each other's personal evolution and collective evolution, you're more like, it's more likely to come out and now you have a language to discuss it and to resolve it and you have a growth mindset to make it better and you have an orientation, we want to turn this into deeper love and compassionate understanding of each other and that's what creates the great relationships right i love hearing you know someone saying oh i you know i just started seeing this person and we decided to start going to therapy together so that we were getting support or i just got together actually i just had this happen with someone um who said i just started this relationship and they had actually purchased the course that chloe and i put together called thriving intimacy for, for a previous relationship and they said we we're we're starting off doing the course together and yes. I, I love hearing that because i mean not only are they skill building but yeah they're creating that common dialogue of common vocabulary a way to talk about things and i think one of the biggest challenges is especially around those things that are scary like like someone for instance saying i don't know if i have what it takes to be faithful Like, wow, what a scary conversation to have with your partner. So any framework that you have that gives you the ability to talk about that and to keep each other safe in that conversation is so powerful and important for for helping you strengthen rather than repeatedly shying away from those kinds of topics. Yes. And it's hard to talk about difficult things. You get easily threatened and those defensive states show up. Um, and if you're not aware, if you can't see those defensive states, then you tend to have those downward spirals that you talked about. But if you're aware of them and you, you adjust back into those dialectics, those states of healthy response in the ways we've been discussing, then you can c- sustain the conversations. People, if they have a bad time, will tend to avoid the conversation. Um, there was one study that showed if a guy initiated sex with his partner and she said no once, there was a certain number of guys that never initiated again. Okay, That one negative experience was enough to close down that conversation. Wow. That's, that's really a bad thing in intimacy. You, you want your, your intimacy to be marked by more and more things being talkaboutable, not less and less, not fewer and fewer things. Yeah, I love that. Um, talk aboutable. I think I'm going to start using that. That uh, there you phrase. go. Yeah, it's a good one. My gift. My gift to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, 
one last thing, and I, we could talk about this forever, obviously. I think every time you've been on the show, we've spoken for quite a while. Um, sure. And there's so much to digest here. And I do encourage you to, if you haven't heard the first two episodes that Keith and I did together, definitely go check them out. Episode 13, episode 80. Um, but I, and, and there's so much in your book. I'm really excited for it to be out because it encapsulates so much. And, you know, as you mentioned, there are a couple chapters on affairs there. As I read through it, I was like, holy mackerel, there's like a couple chapters on just about everything, which isn't to say that it's this long slog of a read. You're actually a very entertaining and engaging writer, which I really appreciate. Um, but there's a lot here for you to to get that that different growth oriented, integrally informed perspective on all these different facets of relationship. What I'm curious about from your perspective, Keith, is we this is something that we've been touching on, and we touched on it in the in the dimension of um, and I even had my own confession here. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to like get compassionate right now, but I can't fucking do it. Um, there's so much that we are learning about how to have better relationships. And yet it, it requires us to change what we habitually do. It requires us to not just hear it and be like, yeah, that's awesome. And maybe to not even just like tell our partner about it, but it requires us to actually shift the way that we behave and to follow through on that over and over again especially because sometimes the initial shift um, doesn't yield the results that we are hoping for. So it's like you got to stick with it. Um, you talk in the book about um, mastery and, you know, that initial like you learn a lot and then you have this plateau and it takes a lot of effort to get through that plateau to the place where you have another growth um, spike. So I'm curious if, if I'm listening to the show and saying, all right, this stuff sounds great. It sounds really great. In fact, it's amazing. Am I going to, what do I do to remember it tomorrow so that I actually can put this thing into practice tomorrow? First of all, do the loving kindness medi meditation a lot. Um, the, the more irritated I am with somebody, the more of an, a positive impact on me the loving-kindness meditation has. And so that's kind of the first place I go when I get pissed off at somebody. And I got to tell you, I've been doing it quite a lot the last year and a half <laughs> in the United States. So, and the other thing is to ask those five questions. Ask them all the time. Not just with your partner, but with everybody. Ask, notice them in yourself. Am I, how am I doing with these, these five questions? Um, and just, just to get information, just to have – do it from a perspective of compassionate understanding. I want to understand. Um, by, and by asking those questions, your unconscious will give you answers. And as that happens, you're strengthening that perception, that perceptual capacity to notice these things and to be interested in these things and to be able to discuss these things. Now, th why is this super important? Um, you know, none of us exist independent of everybody else. So we have our, our history and we have all the cultures that we were in embedded in our personalities and in our relationships. 
Um, and American culture has, over the last hundred years, has gradually been waking up. Psychotherapy and psychology um, have uh, influenced it to some extent. And in the 21st century, more and more psychotherapists are recognizing that psychotherapy is not primarily about identifying psychopathology and treating it like, you know, an infection. Psychotherapy is about supporting people's uh, development relationally, individually. It's about supporting people's personal evolution, supporting people being healthy and happy and having coherent lives and growing. And then along the way, there's blocks and problems that are natural functions of being human beings um, and that those are difficult. Um, the nervous system, human nervous system, once it establishes a defensive pattern, doesn't want to give it up. That pattern has to be included and transcended in a more complex pattern, and that requires conscious effort on our part. And ideally, these things would be taught from birth onward, um, but they're not. So what we do is we start whenever we start and learn things and, and do our best to implement them. And receiving influence from caring other people is a superpower, as I said in the beginning, and particularly from our partner. Now, hostile influence is not caring influence. If somebody wants to dominate me and I'm influenced to submit, that doesn't do us any good relationally, okay? You know, but someone influencing me when I'm being pissed off into inviting me into a growth um, hierarchy with them, inviting me into mutual understanding, and if I can receive that influence and do it, then we've taken our relationship at that moment to a greater level of com complexity like you and Chloe did in the example that you gave. Okay, we want to do that. We want to get better at that throughout a lifetime. And we want to teach our children how to do it. Um, and with our partner, we want to help our partner do it and, and generally insist on partners who are willing to, to grow with us. They don't have to be as deep as we are in any developmental line. But, you know, if they're willing to, to grow on, on any of the significant lines of development, the psychosocial, the sexual, the moral line, and so on, we can continue to get more loving and more complex, and human development goes in the direction of more compassion, um, more deeper understanding, uh, deeper consciousness. And with couples, it goes to having a more and more special inner subjectivity. And that inner subjectivity is, is beautiful and powerful, and really the most powerful and delicate relationship that's ever existed is a, is a modern marriage where people can maintain this, this container, this friendship and love affair and repair of injuries and supporting each other's evolution. Um, it's a developmental driver. You know, as you begin to, to do that with someone, you value it, it it's, you get a little bit protective of it. Um, it's easier to not let outside influences screw it up. And it's easier to adjust when you have primitive in, in, uh, incursions from your trauma history or from your early learning. Um, I have a question. How do you, can you give me an example of like, this is the moment to exercise my power to receive caring influence. And I know I sort of offered one with Chloe, but I, I'm curious, like, how would that, like, when does that typically arise for a couple so that they're like, oh, this is like the perfect time. Caring influence is available for me. Let me receive. How would I identify that? Great example. You're, you're having a conversation with your partner. I mean, you know, I'll, uh, I've had this happen with Becky many times. I shall say something, um, I don't know, uh, she'll make a comment about, um, 
uh, taking care of somebody. You know, she errs on the side of codependence occasionally. And I'll go, geez, just like that. You know, really? You're going to take care of that person? Now, you can hear the contempt in my voice, right? Now, at that point, I'm, if I'm looking at her, I see a wave of pain go across her face. And she'll, these days, she'll say, geez, that was kind of a nasty tone. Now, 40 years ago, I would have said, well, yeah, yeah, well, you're thinking of doing a really stupid thing. You know, that's why I used a nasty tone. Okay, well, I learned from bitter experience that that really wasn't a very good response to that. (laughs) That was a stupid response because it just made things worse. So what I'll do is go, yeah, she's right. And I'll go, you know, I'm sorry. I know if I think it's a bad idea, I use that dismissive tone and I apologize. I am worried that you're going to do something that will, you know, hurt you, that, that might not be appropriate to do. And so I got contemptuous. I apologize. I received influence. I changed what I thought and how I did. Got it. Now, she, on the other hand, was not caught up in the fact that I'd used a contemptuous tone 30 seconds earlier. She could have been. She could have said, well, you, you know, you said that and they used that nasty tone. Screw you. You know, well, I'm sorry I used a nasty tone. It's too late. People will say that. It's too late. Well, it needs to not be too late. If your partner's doing their best to shift, and so what Becky will do is go, thanks. You know, I appreciate it, and I'll do my best to not be codependent with this person. She'll receive influence from me then. Okay, it's as simple as that. If you just do it on the level of tones, is my tone communicating respect and care? If it's not, I'm sorry. By definition, I'm sorry. It's not like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry unless you deserve it. (laughs) No. Nobody deserves a contemptuous tone. You know, I, I, I'm a martial artist, right? I studied karate and lots of other martial arts for decades. You know, the, it, the only time that you do violence to another person is in a street fight, and then you do it respectfully. <laughs> now, it's not the other person really could care less whether you're being respectful when you're breaking their arm, but you know that you're doing it respectfully. <laughs> <laughs> Every other situation... Setting boundaries, we talked about earlier, you know, telling somebody you need to stop doing that because that's hurting, all of that can be done respectfully. Okay, that, that's the standard. And once we embrace that standard, which is basically a nonviolent standard, it's not a passive standard, it's a nonviolent standard, it organizes us whenever we have a little bit of violence of tone or deed or thought or so on to say, yeah, that was violent, I apologize. And that's noticing that in itself and then making that adjustment changes everything. Yeah. Yeah. And following on the the question before I'm listening and I'm saying, okay, I want, I, I need to remember to do that tomorrow. I need to remember to do that tomorrow. Like on this core level of recognizing, okay, I have a habit of not doing that. And I realize we probably don't have time right now to go into a whole conversation about how to change habits. But what would oh, be yeah. the, the first step that someone could take to ensure that, okay, I'm not going to just do tomorrow what I habitually do. I'm, I'm going to maintain my awareness of some other options that exist for me. Um, almost any contemplative practice helps. There's a real interesting study that was done on psychotherapists. Psychotherapists who did contemplative practice, which is any kind of meditation that focused on compassionate um, inner awareness, they had higher empathy scores. But when they stopped doing their practice, their empathy scores went down. Wow. So 
having some mindful practice and you know those those five questions if you're asking them about yourself is a is a mindful practice paying attention with acceptance and caring intent what you're feeling thinking judging wanting sensing is a mindfulness practice doing that mindfulness practice and and being able to recognize when you shift when you shift into violence, when you shift into diminishing another person, or when you're feeling that sense of attunement where the sky is the limit. You and I are going back and forth in that that inner subjectivity that we all love so much, that seekers love so much with other seekers, where we're looking for deeper truths together, and both of us are kind of alert to what's going to emerge between us. There's There's a palpable difference between those two modes of discourse. Once that becomes visible to you, it becomes way easier to regulate it. And when it's visible to you as a couple, now you've changed. You know, that's a developmental milestone when that's visible for a couple and they both feel a sense of responsibility to maintain the positive intersubjectivity and to make adjustments with the negative intersubjectivity. So yeah. there's the answer. Attunement, contemplative practice, and noticing the difference between those two states and recognizing it's my responsibility to adjust from the negative state to the positive state, just like you did with Chloe. Right. I have a problem. What's my responsibility? My responsibility with her now is to lead with my vulnerability. I really don't know what to do. You're upset. I'm kind of conflicted. I don't know what to do. That vulnerable response was the most powerful response you could give in that moment. It invited her to understand and offer her own vulnerability. And out of that, you guys came to a greater level of complexity with each other. Perfect. Yeah. Well, Keith, thank you so much, as always, for being here with us to chat about relationships and um, your experience combined with all the research you've done. I really enjoy uh, our ability to to enter that that highly attuned uh, intersubjective space together, and uh, hopefully it's enjoyable for you listening as well because you can tell. We, I think we both get kind of excited about it. Yeah, um, you're it's really fun. It's really fun talking with you, Neil. Awesome. Just, just gotta say, this is really one. This is really a good time. <laughs> <laughs> good. Awesome. Well, then we'll we know we'll have another opportunity for sure in the future. Yes. In the meantime, if you are interested in finding out more about Keith's work. Do check out his new book coming out, Loving Completely. He has many other books that are all great um, I, that I recommend for sure. Keith, what, what's your website? What's the best way for people to find out more about what's happening with you? Just go on my website, drkeithwitt.com. There's lots of free lectures and, you know, lots of blogs. Um, if you sign up, which is free, you get a free copy of my book, Attuned Family, and I'll, and I'll send you free content from some of the classes that I teach or the lectures that I've done. Um, and there's also lectures for sale and classes for sale on my website. So, yeah, go to my website. Check it out. Um, Awesome. Take, and, some, take something for you. And we will have, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, a detailed transcript available for you if you visit neilsatin.com slash completely, as in loving completely, or text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Keith Witt, such a pleasure to have you have you back here. And thanks so much for all of your wisdom and, uh, and knowledge today. Thank you for having me. 
And also, just one last footnote. We did a little research after this interview, and the song I Behold You was written by Rafe Perlman and Safir Lewis with the melody by the Amys. If you Google Angel Walk song, you'll find it. And I'll make sure that we have a link in the show notes of this week's episode as well. So thank you so much, Rafe and Safir and the Amys, for the beautiful melody and words that are contributing so much in my relationship with Chloe and hopefully now in many other relationships as well. 